0: section 38 of library of the world's best literature ancient and modern volume 10 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org library of the world's best literature ancient and modern volume 10 section 38 selected works by olof von dalin Olof von Dalin, 1708 1763, by William H. Carpenter. Olof von Dalin, the father of modern Swedish poetry, was born at Vinberga in Holland, Sweden, August 29, 1708. He was one of the most important figures in Swedish literature during a transitional period, which, in consequence of the influence he exercised, has been called the Dalin Age. He was the son of a clergyman and studied at the University of Lund, where under the instruction of Ridelius he particularly devoted himself to French and English literature. At the age of twenty he went to Stockholm in the capacity of tutor, and in 1731 he entered the government service. His talents, brilliancy and adaptability made him a universal favorite and his career was singularly unobstructed. He was the embodiment of the vital new spirit, which flashed upon the dullness of the time, breaking up formalism and dead tradition, and introducing into literature an element which was destined to transform it. In 1732 there appeared in Stockholm a weekly paper, edited anonymously, devoted to literary topics. And to the discussion of the questions of the day, the publication of this little sheet was the immediate result of Dalin's English proclivities. His studies in English literature had formed his mind upon a new model, and the Svenska Argus, seventeen thirty-two to seventeen thirty-four, was the Swedish counterpart of the English Spectator, and a direct imitation of the example of Addison. The appearance of the argus was a revelation the public accustomed to the monotonous dullness of its predecessors was taken by storm by the wit piquancy and verve of the new periodical its first issue already relegated such publications as the sedoleren de mercurius itself only two years older to the limbo of things outgrown the paper at once attained universal popularity and when the identity of the young editor became known he was acclaimed as the foremost writer of the land and was overwhelmed with favors from every side his next work was tankar om kritiker thoughts about criticisms and the dramas then afunsiuk the jealous man a comedy in imitation of holberg and brunhild a tragedy returning from a tour he created great enthusiasm by his Saga om Hosten, The Story of the Horse, 1739, a witty prose narrative in which, in the character of a horse, he related in a highly humorous manner the history of Sweden. This was followed by the satire strongly suggestive of Swift, April Work om war herliga did, April work of our glorious time a piece of writing which delighted the public. In 1742 appeared what was regarded by his contemporaries as the attainment of his highest poetic efforts Svenska Friheten Swedish Freedom, a didactic allegorical poem. Dalin was ennobled in 1751, and the youthful Queen of Sweden, Louis Ulrika, sister of Frederick the Great, appointed him to the double office of tutoring the young Crown Prince Gustav and writing a complete history of Sweden. These compulsory duties, and the frequent festal poems, which in his capacity as court poet it devolved upon him to write, robbed him of the leisure to attempt any sustained effort, and from this time, aside from his history, the only products of his pen are occasional poems, of which a large number have been preserved. Dalin was the chief founder of the Witterhead's Academy, Academy of Arts and Sciences, established by Queen Louise Ulrika in seventeen fifty-three, which in seventeen eighty-six, under Gustav III, was transformed into the Witterhead's History of Antiquities Academy. He was appointed Privy Councillor in seventeen fifty-three, and subsequently, being suspected of revolutionary intrigues, he was banished from the court. He returned in seventeen sixty-one. During the period of the exile, he worked upon his Sveriges Historia, History of the Kingdom of Sweden, which he ultimately brought down to the period of Charles IX. This appeared in four volumes, 1747–62. to 62. His collected works were published 1767. He died at Drottningholm, August twelfth, seventeen 1763. The immense influence of Dallin upon his age, was disproportionate to the merits of his writings, and must be ascribed to his personality and to the new elements which he introduced, rather than to his creative genius. He was the force which opened new channels, the power which directed the new tendencies of his day. He broke away from the traditions of the German cult, which until his time had been the ruling power, and brought into Swedish the potent elements of French and English literature. Together with Madame Nordenflecht and other followers of his school, and aided by the French influence of the court, he completely transformed the character of the national literature. William H. Carpenter. Olof von Dahlen, from the Swedish Argos, number thirteen, seventeen thirty three non I hope you know me now, my reader, so that you will pardon me if I write but little, since that happens merely in order that I may set down the truth. I too am not my own master, for my offspring have now taken it upon themselves to shut off their speakers with that blow which makes for a creditable piece of writing, but afflicts the truth. In which respect I for the most resemble the fifth wheel of a wagon, and trouble myself no more about it, than many a town councillor or juryman bothers his head about the verdicts which he signs and approves, without making it my business to prove it true, and as if asleep give in my vote. You must also yourself admit, my just reader, that it is necessary in our time to lie the truth in among the people. Our father Adam and mother Eve, it happened a short time since, came up out of their graves and were at their estate Dilkestad, where they presently proclaimed over the whole land a diet, or assemblage, at which all their dear children of both sexes should appear in person, or by duly qualified substitute, in order that their universal parents might see and rejoice in their northern seed, might learn how apt was each, and how he had improved his talent, and admonished him to do honour to his creation. Here was gathered together a considerable assembly of people. Each one, from the greatest to the least, went forward to kiss grandpapa's and grandmama's hand. They bent and they bowed, and most of the inhabitants of the land now viewed with each other with all their might of soul and body, with internal and external senses, to see— who should most please their first parents. For it may be believed it was no joke to be able to rejoice them with their excellence, now some five thousand years after their death, and to put in their minds the thought, see Adam what a son you have, see Eve what a daughter, etc. Adam who honored the first creation and loved nature's activity, which tolerates no compulsions or additions, was amazed when he saw his children "'for he did not know half of them.' "'Where have they come from?' said he. "'They are never mine, unless, forsooth, there shall have been a new creation, "'in the overseeing of which neither God nor I has had a part.' Eve had indeed been proud of so many offspring, but was somewhat abashed at these words, and said, "'I should fear, sire, that you made me out an indifferent woman.' if all did not know that we were alone in our conjugal state. "'Well enough is it web of my weft,' he answered. "'But the children so disguise themselves in their attempts to please, "'that they lose all the charm which a spontaneous activity "'should otherwise most easily possess. "'Yet what am I saying? "'I readily see that our fall is the reason of this and of many disorders.' "'It seems to me,' said Eve, that you should have a review and teach the poor children how they should conduct themselves so as not to continue in so monstrous a condition. Well, this was arranged, and all were now to pass before the eye of Adam, whether they had changed themselves or not. He had seated himself on a wall of earth, and all the liberal arts stood around about him. Dear children, said he to his offspring. Come forward now, in order that I may see how you conduct yourselves. The inordinate desire of honor is the reason for this new creation, which does not however seek the honor of the great Creator but your own. When any of his children came forward, who without affectation lisped their tender thoughts, they were kissed with tears by the old man and matron, who said, that nature in them was not restrained, and wished that they might henceforth continue in such freedom. Behold this, said they, produces pleasure, without you yourselves knowing it, and this is the kernel of the art of pleasing. Many court-worshippers and people of the upper ranks of life, where ambition takes firmest hold of the body, also went forward. Who for the most part had so well exercised themselves in appearances that they seemed neither in action nor ward to be affected. These two won tolerably well in this way the commendation of the old people. Yet there were some of them who particularly thought to please kings and princes, who took upon themselves a more zealous appearance than they had inherited, and bore their bodies in greater state than birth had given them beneath costly garments arrayed in precise order, so that they by this means spoiled all their beauty. For Adam had only aversion to such artificial figures. But what he did not have in them he did have in a part of those who followed. Those were people of ordinary condition, who Vied with the first, indeed with their own natures, in acquiring charm, When these latter had noticed that the people of rank had some fault or peculiar manner, then straightway seized by this wretched desire of honor, they wished at least to resemble the great in bagatelles. Some set one or two wrinkles on their foreheads, some a particular expression about the mouth, some lisped or stammered purposely, and introduced extraordinary sounds into their speech, some affected strange laughter, some had a wonderful bend of the shoulders, some a simulated walk, some gave themselves political or statistical features, etc., etc., and all directly opposed to their otherwise natural manner. Yes, I can tell you right straight out, said Adam. I have not a little esteem for you. But listen, I will tell you a little story. It has been told me that my famous son, Alexander the Great, once upon a time, twisted his neck out of joint, so that he was obliged to walk with his head somewhat ovary. Straightway, were all his lords and his courtiers moved to walk in the same manner, especially before his eyes, with the thought of pleasing him exceedingly. But among those who, whether out of zeal for their master, or of love for themselves, would particularly be like the king, one twisted his neck so badly. That his valiant prince, grown angry at such buffinery, gave him so heavy a blow that the cuff set the heads right again for the whole court and army. If I were able now, I would certainly deal out many an affectionate blow to remedy all the evil habits with which you think to please me. I wish that Argus had to-day the same smart as a box on the air. "'for we saw this morning many affected cripples, "'as sound and active as when they came into the world. "'A part of you,' continued Adam, "'I notice compel yourselves to limp and stoop very seriously "'and with great discomfort on canes, "'as if twenty-year-old legs were already afflicted with the rich man's sickness. "'But if someone took the canes and taught the young to spring, "'he would do rightly. "'Do you think it is no advantage to have good legs?' If you think in this manner to imitate celebrated people, as has been said, then you shall know that it often offends him who is aped as much as it disfigures the ape himself. Many of our women who daily vie with each other for the possession of the greatest charm came forward with the idea that the old people's hearts would be rejoiced with their comeliness. But that did not fall out well. Since the one made a grimace by setting her mouth in a churchly manner, the other changed her features in that she wished to show her beautiful teeth. The third turned her eyes so strangely that they both blinked and squinted. The fourth had given herself a beautiful skin with ingredients from the apothecary's shop. The fifth assumed a fatigued gait. The sixth purposely appeared somewhat ill and languid. A pastor's wife forced her mild countenance into a scornful mien. A burgher's wife sweetened her mouth with ill-pronounced French words, and kept her body immovable because of her beautiful clothes. A merchant's daughter could think of nothing else than to bow. Another maiden twisted her face over both shoulders with a stiff glance, etc., etc. So that Eve said, "'What is this? Will you please me with force?' "'Ah, foolish women!' if you wish truly to please, then you should not think of it. Such a thing must come to you unwittingly. When Eve said this, some men lamented the vanity and elegant frivolity of a part of a woman. But they were brought up sharply, for Adam said, Will you now again transform nature, and make that into heaviness which is created for your pleasure and refreshing help? It befits you, it may be, better than that to be ill-favoured. If any of you are born to seriousness, then it well becomes that one that she is too. But if you desire that others shall be like you and bother themselves with your thoughts, then is that ill-conceived. For example, a woman may indeed amuse herself with books and little acts of cleverness, but if she makes study her trade, then she becomes a pedant. The malcontents, however, complained again that their mistresses desired that men should resemble them in all things except in sex, and hold them otherwise holy as women. But Adam replied, If you are such fools, then shall you have advice. I see many gallants who readily undergo such a transformation, but that accords with their nature as does clay with straw, and surely an intelligent woman does not like it herself further adam said now i must laugh look at that bashful youth yonder in the crowd who is so fearful of sinning against the customs of affectation that he does not know how he shall hold his hands now he sticks them here and now there when he bows he looks back with perplexity at all to see if he did rightly at that moment there came forward some scholars and poets who with references presented their works and verses, some of which they read. But Adam said, Children, you were born to be shoemakers. You had understood alls better than pens. At the trade you had wrought out profit and pleasure, but not in study. Endowments are of many kinds, and every one must consider which of them he has received. Thereupon some of the clergy came forward with soft steps, wholly assured that they would receive a caress from the old man for every time they had named him in their sermons but when the pretended pious went along he became straightway displeased what should there avail the measured-out words and the forced high-flown delivery filled with roses without fragrance suppose that he had seen some of them in the pulpit with their comedian affectations or how unbecomingly they threw themselves and moved about there. Adam said shortly to them, Such nonsense is unnecessary in your sacred office. In this consisted the whole caress. It is impossible for me to remember or to be able to describe all of those who at this time disgraced themselves before Father Adam and Mother Eve. This I know that Japhet's grandsire pronounced this word of admonition. My descendants, said he, let it be fairly seen that you do not so badly disfigure yourselves as you have hitherto done. Let not the one take the other's talent and decry his own. Prove yourselves what character you own and abide with it. So shall you mark in each other that there is not one who is not made pleasing in his way, if it be rightly used a surly man may be agreeable even in his surliness and so on moreover every one shall give himself to the service in the state to which he is fallen and shall not eager of honour offer violence to nature of which i see among you so many examples that I just now coughing deprived the old man of words so that he stopped short and straightway As may be believed, the whole crowd made grimace upon grimace and laughed at him. The poor old couple were glad to get away from Tilkestad and lay themselves in their graves. So it went with the assemblage. Yes, believe me surely, he who will tell the truth appears at times like a hen on a perch in windy weather. Translation of William H. Carpenter End of section 38 End of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10